Hey, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to At Risk, brought to you by Interact. It is Indigenous History Month, but make no mistake, Canada's colonial past is not dead. It is not even past. That does not mean there is no cause for hope, though. My two guests today are helping to build that better future for all of us. And we, in fact, enjoy some good laughs during our discussion about how to get there. First, I'm joined by Michelle Good. Michelle is a lawyer, poet, author, and winner of this year's Amazon First Novel Award for the novel Five Little Indians, which follows the lives of five residential school survivors. Michelle is of Cree ancestry, a descendant of the Battle River Cree, and a member of the Red Pheasant Cree Nation. Five Little Indians is a best-selling work of fiction that conveys a profound truth. With her infectious joie de vivre and engrossing storytelling, Michelle extends the kindest of invitations to bear witness to the intergenerational harms caused by residential schools. Next, I speak with Dr. Lisa Richardson. Dr. Richardson is an executive with the National Consortium on Indigenous Medical Education and strategic advisor on Indigenous Health at the University of Toronto's Temerity Faculty of Medicine. She is Anishinaabekwe and has been working on reserve as well as in Toronto's clinics to vaccinate First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples. In a far-ranging conversation, we discuss the critical role of self-determination in better health outcomes for Indigenous people, the scaling of Indigenous health education, and the necessity of Indigenous health legislation. In spite of the barriers, Dr. Richardson is confident that progress cannot be stopped and we'll all be the better for it. Doctor's orders. Before reconciliation can be accomplished, we must appreciate the truth. And I give thanks to Michelle and Lisa for their creative and diligent efforts to spread it. To borrow Michelle's metaphor that you'll hear later in the episode, we cannot take the ingredients of the past out of today's meal, but we can keep adding better ingredients to make a more nourishing future. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me, Michelle, and welcome to At Risk. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here, and thanks for the invitation. Michelle, you are the woman of the hour. Tell us about all of the accolades your wonderful book, Five Little Indians, is receiving. Well, you know, it, it is really very surprising to me that the book has been received um, as it has been. And, you know, when you sit down to write a book, you're not thinking about awards or, you know, you're not even thinking about publishing. Like if you focus on, on those kinds of things, you'll never get it done. It'll never happen. And, uh, you know, but it, it, it really has been, uh, you know, quite a glorious surprise. And for me, the real importance of the awards is that it elevates the book in the public consciousness and that perhaps more people will pick it up and more people will open themselves to a different perspective on this history and not just history, but history that is, that continues to play out today. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you, um, you know, sometimes we talk about art for art's sake, but that's not what this is. You wrote this book to have impact. Tell us about that impact you were hoping to achieve. Well, you know, there's been so much work, um, wonderful work that's been done on the residential schools. I mean, we have lots of memoir from survivors and we have, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Report, tons of work that's been done in the academy. But I felt that, and this was primary reason that I proceeded um, in the fiction genre, is that is that people really, really did not understand the true and lasting impact 
of what happened in these schools, what happened to these kids over 120 years, what happened to the communities over 120 years, because we didn't just experience this as individuals, we experienced it as a people. And it impacted our communities, parents, grandparents, just as much as it impacted those little kids. And so I got so sick and tired <laughs> of, you know, hearing this terrible thing, you know, the, the ubiquitous and just so awful question of why can't they just get over it? And I wanted to answer that question. I wanted to sit down and paint a picture of what it means to be a survivor, whether that's, you know, a direct survivor in the sense that they've attended the school or the intergenerational survivors who also suffer very deeply from this terrible legacy. So that's what I set out to do. Do you think we should consider using art, literature, visual arts more to advance, you know, public policy issues? Absolutely. You know, we need to uh, tell this story and other stories in as many ways as we possibly can in order, because people all receive information differently. And that was another thing that I felt about this book is that by making it a fictional account, it's safer for, for people to walk into this book. And then I trap them. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, it is because they have, before they turn the first page, they have an out. They can say, well, it's just fiction. It's, you know, it's just a story. And they can say, oh, you know, it's just art, right? But art reflects life. And, um, and the, the, the advantage of proceeding by way of a fictional account is that you have a much greater latitude to tell the truth of the story without being limited to a given set of facts, if you will. And, you know, and I've said it many times and over the years that it took to write this and, you know, even before that something need not be factual in order to be true, that the essence of truth can be reflected artistically, fictionally, visually, in whatever way. And I think that's one of the reasons that this book is resonating in the way that it is, is that people are feeling this truth in a very visceral way when they read this book, in a very human, personalized way. Which, you know, I mean, I'm just dancing that, <laughs> that you know, people are feeling it, you know, that people are picking it up and getting that very, as I say, visceral sense of this reality. I wanted to ask about the impact of the book on you. Um, uh, you, you previously represented survivors of residential schools. You're, you're, you're trained. Uh, you have legal training. Um, uh, you've talked, uh, in other instances uh, about your mother. Was there any healing for you or other type of impact, um, through the process? of writing this book. I'll, I'll just briefly share at one point, I, I, I'm, I'm a lawyer as well. And at one point I was representing um, survivors of uh, sexual assault and I had to step away. Like I found myself, you know, afraid to walk home alone. Um, and when that combined with a personal loss in, in my own life, it, it just became harder to manage the the boundaries that, that, that protects your, your own well-being uh, so so what was was there was there a positive impact on you and did you need to do some healing through writing this book well yeah you know I mean I, I don't know that that my own healing if you will um, happened through the course of writing this book I mean I've suffered my own traumas and so on but um, but there was a great I suppose, I felt very empowered by letting these characters who really took on a life of their own very early on in the writing process and just letting them tell me their story, right? The way people tell their stories. And then, you know, so many times when I was writing this book, I felt like a scribe. I've said it before. I felt like that these stories were in the air and they were just coming through me to, you know, to articulate in this way. And, you know, there were 
some things that were very, very difficult to write about. Um, you know, um, writing about Lily was very, very difficult for me because Lily was a real person. And my mother watched her hemorrhage to death from tuberculosis at residential school. Mm. And I wrote a poem about Lily. Gee, I think it was like 1994, <laughs> you know, back in the dark ages. And um, the last line of that poem was, Lily, I remember. And that's what I want. That's why I put Lily's proper name in the book and recounted that story in that way. Um, because she was a real little girl. And, you know, her life and her death, imagine just being a little girl and dying surrounded by strangers without any comfort or proper care or, you know, and imagine the impact on my mother being a little girl herself and watching her friend die. So, so there were times in the book, there were things that, that I felt I had to share that I had to write about. And in doing it, I felt that I, um, that I fulfilled some obligations, if you will, in terms of my own life, that I have some understandings and some experiences that are quite rare. And, um, and this was my opportunity to articulate them in this way so that maybe people can understand um, what this is really all about. I saw on Twitter there was a suggestion that this book should be included on high school reading lists. What 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 do you think about that? Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that uh, I, I, you know, basically, if I'm ever asked to speak at a school, I probably shouldn't say this, but I do. And um, and I've I've met virtually with a number of classes, um, and you know. With what is available to kids, I at first my first thought about this is that you know there's some pretty grim stuff in here and some pretty uh, um, I can't find the word at the moment some pretty explicit um, subject matter and I thought maybe it's a bit much for high school and then I thought wait a minute <laughs> all I have to do is just Google anything and they can see all of the horror of humanity right so. Um, and I think that the learning that's available in this book far outweighs any kind of uh, shock that somebody might experience. So I would love to see that. I know that a professor in Newfoundland has used it in her first year English class. And I think that would be pretty spectacular if it uh, became a part of curriculum. That was something that I really sought to do in the writing as well, is to make it as um, accessible as possible. Um, I can write, you know, we're lawyers, right? <laughs> you know, I can write in a very complex and a very obtuse way if need be. And, uh, and I, I really wanted this to, I wanted people um, at basically any reading level to be able to absorb the book and enjoy it and experience it. And so um, I took a particular style that I might not have taken in another book. I, also felt, um, so now it's my turn to struggle for words. Maybe, maybe reserved isn't the, the right word, but there, there's a lot of, um, you don't, you don't explain, you don't go into, uh, detail about traumas, but you definitely convey them. And not only do I think that helps, you know, with, with, with a younger audience, I think it helps with a lot of audiences. Who may who may have traumas, but 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 want to read the book? That's right. And I, I I lots of readers reach out to me. They track me down on my webpage and they send me emails. They're just lovely to get. They really are. And uh, and many of them respond saying, uh, you know, without going into gory detail, you've expressed this. You know, we get it, but without all of the gory detail. And I mean. I wasn't so concerned about it being triggering to other people as being off-putting. And, um, and the fact of the matter is, is that I didn't want to give any airtime to the abusers. Right. Or to the abuse. I didn't want the abuse itself to uh, overshadow the, the stories because the stories 
are not so much about the abuse. They're about the impacts of the abuse. And they're about the qualities of these characters, if you will, my little kids, <laughs> right? It's about their qualities and their strengths and what they've had to uh, muster to even try to have even a modest life. And that's the focus of this story, not the abusers. And I mean, this book has been very different at different times during its development. Um, at one time, there was a big whole chapter about how Sister Mary turned into a monster, <laughs> 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 uh, which I cut. And, uh, and again, for the reason, because it's just not her story. It's not about the church. It's not about the feds. It's not about any of that. It's about these kids. And while, of course, it's fiction, uh, you know, it's it's not the it's it's not the ancient past, is it? The it's both the present. This, it is the present. Yeah, it's totally the present, and you know there are you know history is a really interesting thing, and I love history. I am really kind of a history junkie, <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, but history is not like a like a cell that you look at under a microscope. History is like the ingredients in the cake we're eating today. Okay. It's it's how we have constructed the world that we're living in today. And you know, we've had the the announcement of the discovery at Kamloops, and that really just should demonstrate that, that this is not you know, something that we can just close a door on and think it's the past. It has no relevance or meaning or no presence in the present. Yeah. Because it certainly does. It obviously, right? Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. yeah. It made me think of Faulkner. The past is not dead. It's not even past. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> it's That's like, right. It, well, here we are, right? It's not even past. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I love um, that. Yes. Uh, so you did mention about being a writer and how how you know it can be obtuse writing or sometimes it can be like you know really clinical too right mm -hmm. numbered paragraphs and you know just the facts ma'am um how did you keep your creative writing skills you know honed how I, like like honestly i find myself sometimes i joke with people it's like i i'm you know uh, my mother sits past but it's like you know if i was writing to my mother hello mother i have three points <laughs> one two three <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well again it's the story right it's the story that drives the writing and these, like I say, these, these characters really came to life really quickly. They became real people to me. And I think of them, I still, to this day, think of them as my kids, right? Mm -hmm. They're my little kids. And, uh, you know, and in many ways, they were telling the story. It's, I, I created this construct in terms of who each of these characters were in a weird sort of way, because I started with the injuries that had been done to them. And then from there, I said, okay, so you've been injured in this way. How does it affect you? But also, how does it, how does it uh, I guess, mold who you will be as a person? Who, how, how do you grow into an adult after having, you know, experienced those kinds of abuses? I also thought that, you know, just sort of really florid writing was not right, right for this kind of storytelling. I mean, you don't want to get into the description of the details of abuse or, you know, those kinds of things. You just, you don't want to get into it. Let me just say it this way. The story itself defined the style. And, you know, I'm working on another book right now and the style is quite different. It's, it's quite different. Yeah. Um, but I really do feel that the story of each of these five kids and their friends um, really defined how it had to be told. Mm, beautiful. So there, you're an advocate and there's an advocate in the book. I have to be schmaltzy. I have to ask, is there some of you in Clara? <laughs> well, you know, I want to say no, you know, I, I want to say no, because really, this book is about and for them. It's not about me. Um, and, you know, lots of people ask because of the advocacy aspect of this, but uh, I didn't, I didn't create that aspect of Clara's character, um, you know, as a reflection of my own life. It was really 
because the court workers were so important when they first came into being. And they were so important in terms of being basically the first opportunity for Indigenous voices to be heard in the courtroom. And, you know, for you know, Indigenous defendants, if you will, to not just plead guilty because it's the easiest, it's the easiest thing to do, right? And then, and at that particular time, that was occurring right at that particular time. And so it was an important part of the general story of the world as it was developing for Indigenous people at that time. So I put that in there, but, you know, I'm sure, <laughs> I mean, I was just aging out of foster care right around the time that you know that a, that these kids were aging out of residential school my characters were aging out of res residential school so so many of the experiences that they had trying to find their way in this city i had and you know we hear a lot these days about providing supports for kids coming out of foster care but back then it was nothing it was just you turn 18 and if you've got a nickel in your pocket that's it sink or swim period Right, throw you into the ocean and that's it. You're on your own. So, you know, so um, it was important to me to try to uh, reflect some of those things in the book. Like, <laughs> uh, one of the things is when um, when Maisie is bringing Lucy to the Manitou Motel. And by the way, Manitou is the Cree word for the creator. Okay, for God. <laughs> and so this red light that shines over everything. <laughs> it's got it's got quite the gatekeeper too, right? <laughs> right. There's no Saint Peter here, right? No. So, um, but when Maisie is taking Lucy to see Harlan, creepy Harlan, at the at the motel to try and get work, and he tells her to pull her shirt around herself tighter right because he wants to see what size uniform she wears that happened to me mm. i was 13 years old you know Ugh. why was i looking for work at 13 years old i don't know but i was and this slimy guy Ugh. yeah basically did that and i just thought you know it's such a reflection of how we're treated and then harlan you know harlan is this he's a bit stereotypical I have to say but he is a, a character that reflects sort of a, a continuing societal attitude towards indigenous women mm -hmm. um, you know there's that line where he says um, you Indian chicks are only good for two things and both of them happen in motel rooms yeah yeah so you know uh, finding opportunities to say those things was an important part of writing this book too You've brought it up a couple of times. I wanted to ask you about aging. You know, uh, you, you, you won the Amazon first novel award for, for example, right? Um, and, you know, uh, that's amazing. But, but, but you have said, you know, I probably don't look like, uh, many, uh, first time, uh, novelists, but, 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 you know, so much and, and particularly with the pandemic, right? And, and some of the, you know, the, the terrible, uh, loss of life inside, uh, long term care facilities. Um, we look at what we lose as we age. What do we gain as we age, Michelle? Well, my goodness, I don't think of it as, I don't ever think of losing things as I age. I, I don't. I mean, we give value to age cheese, right? <laughs> wine. <laughs> right? Like, if, wine, right? Like, it's, like, if we look at that word as being something beyond a, chronological counting of years and you know the you know wrinkles and white hair and so on and so forth uh, you know somebody asked me you know why this happened at this point in my life and why you know I didn't write it when I was younger and I don't think I could have written it when I was younger quite mm -hmm. frankly I don't think I would have brought the depth of experience and understanding that I have um if I was writing this as a younger person, I probably would have just got really annoyed and stomped off. <laughs> <laughs> and fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, that was, there were times though, I must say, when I had to walk away from the writing, sometimes for a year. Right. Because it was so uh, infuriating. 
and um, frustrating because you know the world is going on around you while you're while you're trying to distill this experience and then you know and you read an article and it's just like oh my god did somebody actually say that like the other day there was an article in the Winnipeg Sun about uh, well it was an it was an opinion piece um, and. Uh, uh, basically saying you're jumping to, you know, everybody's jumping the gun about these bodies found in Kamloops. We don't know that they're kids. Uh, we don't know how they died, you know, blah, 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 right? Like the, you know, the apologist nonsense that we're constantly dealing with. And, you know, you get that and then you get the comments. Oh, it's just like, you know, and then, you know, Colton Bushi died. Um, during the writing of this book, he's my relation. Mm. He's from my reserve. He, we're, we were, well, we still are related. And, and the terrible commentary that came out of Saskatchewan folk um, after that incident. And, you know, it just sort of shuts you down a little bit and you have to walk away. Otherwise you're going to write a really mad book. And I don't want to write a mad book. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you wrote a great book. And and at times, you know, uh, I mean, I have to say, I, you know, I personally went through uh, just every emotion, like every emotion, right? Because there is a lot of joy in the book, too. There's yes, a lot there of joy. is. Well, you know what I mean? That's, that's really important that um, it has to be balanced because these are human beings. They're not case studies. They're they're human beings. And of course, uh, you know, and I, I've said it before that no matter how awful something is, there is always an opportunity for joy and hope, love, affection, loyalty, support for each other, and all of those positive things that, you know, I tried to articulate in the book to demonstrate how these kids are a community for each other when their real community just isn't available to them anymore. Yeah. So the book has been optioned. What are your hopes and do you have any fears associated with that? I, 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 the, I think the idea it's for, it's for a limited series. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's been optioned by uh, Prospero Pictures with uh, Marty Cates at the helm. And of course, Marty made Hotel Rwanda. Mm. I know that he understands genocide. And that's, of course, what this is all about. It's about genocide. I don't have any fears. But then again, when I was nine years old, after jumping into the deep end of a pool when I couldn't swim, um, <laughs> my mother asked me if there was anything that I was afraid of. And I think I said no. Um, and I don't know that that's a good thing. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but no, I, I don't. And what's so wonderful about it is that there are many people that don't read. My son had, um, you know, pretty moderately severe dyslexia. And it was so awful because I knew he would never become, you know, a book lover. He would never be a, an avid reader. And, uh, yeah, I, I've said it. He <laughs> poke himself in the eye with a needle than read a book, right? And, uh, and for, for folks that have a hard time reading, they can, they can still have the story, right? Absolutely. It reaches out. And I have great confidence in um, Shannon Masters. She's Ian Métis, who's going to be writing. And, uh, and I do have a consulting producer role oh, in the excellent. whole thing. So, so I feel very confident that it will be true to the book. And um, so that's very exciting. <laughs> it's super exciting. And I can't wait. And I can't wait to see it. So, before I let you go, I want uh, we have the central question of this podcast. The podcast is called At Risk, and our central question is, do you truly value something if you're not thinking about how you could lose it? Which is to say, do you have to think about risks? Like do you, do you have to think about risks in order to value something? That's really an interesting question. I think if you spend too much time worrying about losing something, you're, you're not going to reach for it. Um, and, you know, like with writing this book, if I had been fearful, 
that it wouldn't be a success or, you know, that I would lose something as a result of, of writing it, I probably wouldn't have written it. And, you know, I think risk is inherent in the world, right? Michelle, thank you for taking the risk of writing this exceptional and moving work of literature that engrosses as much as it educates. I'm thrilled the book is receiving so much attention and that you're being so deservedly recognized. You know, it's like, it's my first book, so I kind of have to do everything with it, right? Like, <laughs> you know, it could be my last. I could drop dead at this age at any time, right? So, you know, so it needs to win awards. It needs to be made into a film or something, right? <laughs> and it needs to rock the world. <laughs> well, mission accomplished. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's very kind. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Richardson, and welcome to At Risk. Hi, Jody. Nice to be here. I wanted to ask you, even at the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic, was anti-Indigenous racism the greatest threat to Indigenous people's health in Canada? Um, I think that's, that's an excellent question. I think anti-Indigenous racism is always a threat to Indigenous peoples in the healthcare system. But the way in which I would think about it is how is racism towards Indigenous people manifesting itself in, in our society? And so I think when we imagine the, the pandemic um, and, and the great risk to Indigenous peoples in Canada related to that pandemic, certainly one of the most significant and concerning factors are the social determinants of Indigenous health. Um, the living conditions the access to care, um, the food security, the presence of chronic illness, all of those, um, those issues which put Indigenous peoples more at risk in many cases of having either more severe disease or more likely to get COVID. Um, those are actually, although they're social determinants of health, those evolve from structural racism within Canada. Because those, um, the, the reserve system, the uh, condition of housing on reserves, all of that evolves from uh, colonial processes and policies. And they have left um, Indigenous peoples you know, living in the cur in current situation. So I think one way to look at that question and answer that question is yes, anti-Indigenous racism is certainly a factor, but I would look at it at the systemic and structural level. Now, clearly the case of Joyce Echequan also highlights the interpersonal, significant interpersonal racism that um, is always a factor in the well-being of Indigenous peoples in, this, in, in healthcare um, and in other institutions. And I think that remains a, a significant factor all the time. And, and is it heightened or was it heightened during uh, COVID-19? Um, some of the research suggests that Indigenous peoples did feel that their, their health suffered, um, non-COVID related um, health conditions suffered more during, during the pandemic. So whether Indigenous, whether that interpersonal racism is a factor, I, I think it probably is. And, and certainly access to care is always an issue. Thank you. That, that, that was a very robust answer. I, I'm grateful for that. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about the vaccine rollout. And um, I think in general, uh, uh, it's viewed as having gone well. What contributed to uh, an effective vaccine rollout? Um, and, and I think, Jody, you're referring specifically to the vaccine rollout in Indigenous communities. Is that right? Yes, thank you. Yeah, so I think one of the, um, the identification of, of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples in Canada as a priority population for during phase one for the vaccination was really important. But going back to your comment about racism, it was interesting how that prioritization led to um, led to an, uh, certainly an increase in racism where people were saying, well, why are Indigenous people getting the vaccine first? 
but that priority emerged because of previous pandemics and and the terrible impact of uh, H1N1, for example, um, ongoing tuberculosis outbreaks, et cetera, in indigenous in indigenous communities because of the living conditions that I just spoke about. So that, but I do think that the that 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 prioritization was key and important. And what that prioritization did is it. Um, encouraged Indigenous leaders early on to start thinking about how to um, implement vaccine rollouts and vaccine strategies within their own communities, what they would need to do to, um, to get high uptake of the vaccine, to have, uh, who did, with whom did they need to partner to deliver the vaccine. So I think having that priority established early on and knowing that um, we were going to be vaccinated early um, got all, all leaders, Indigenous leaders and organizations mobilizing really early on to start thinking about this. So I think that was one factor. The second is just this idea of self-determination. So that this is not um, this is not about having a non-Indigenous partner come in and determine exactly what to do. Um, this is about, you know, chief and council, um, health managers, um, Métis leaders, um, Inuit elders and, and others determining what the needs were and then partnering with um, relevant uh, health providers, government organizations in order to do that. And it, a really great example is what happened in northwestern and, and northeastern Ontario between Nishnabiaski Nation and Orange, which is an air, uh, which is a um, medical service funded by the provincial government, in which they partnered, and really it was the Nishnabiaski Nation and local chief and council in each of those First Nations that determine what the best strategy would be within each community. But Orange brought in the expert, the medical expertise, the um, understanding of how to get healthcare into um, various different environments, how to transport the Moderna vaccine, which needs to be cooled at a, and, and, you know, at room temperature for a certain number of hours, et cetera. So bringing that expertise together. And it was just a beautiful example of collaborative uh, work and partnership um, led by Indigenous peoples with incredible support from non-Indigenous partners. So I think that was another, that's the, the, the idea around self-determination um, with, with amazing support, um, including resources and funding from the partners with expertise. Well, one of the nice things um, in connection with the vaccine rollout was reading your Twitter feed. Uh, because there were times, uh, I mean, you highlighted some challenges, um, but it was also really joyful. Um, what were some of the challenges, though? I think that uh, it it it, it depends on 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 the particular context. So. I can speak specifically first around the urban context. And I would say the challenge is there that unlike in um, a specific First Nation or, or Métis community or um, Inuit community where you have, uh, you know, a single um, point person, maybe the manager of health or the council and also a responsible um, government organization, in the urban setting, you don't have that mm infrastructure. So although there are many amazing Indigenous organizations on the ground, there was not the support um, that I saw in the um, on the res reserves, for example, where um, the government clearly had a responsibility and a role that they took very seriously around that. So in the urban context, you had public health units who were scrambling, trying to figure out with whom they should be working, who were their Indigenous partners, who should be leading this. And that became a major challenge. So although it was grassroots initiative, which is phenomenal, the um, workload and the inf the workload was tremendous for many of us on the ground trying to do the work. And we didn't necessarily have all of the expertise. So trying to find, um, find people who could support the work was a challenge. I think it led to some incredible partnerships. And I think it led to um, just amazing work by local indig urban Indigenous organizations. But I would say that was the major, major challenge in that place. Um, on, in, in the reserve, on reserve, um, if we think about um, 
uh, rural or remote First Nations, I would say the challenge was around more the logistics and um, how do you get vaccine in? How do you uh, monitor what happens if someone has an allergic reaction? So I think that would be the significant challenge. And that was why it was helpful in Ontario, for example, to have experts who really truly do know how to how to um, deliver healthcare in, in many different settings. So that was the orange group. Um, and I think broad, more broadly, the issue that would apply across the board as a challenge, which is not just a challenge in among Indigenous people, but among others as well, is how um, is, is vaccine confidence? So how do we build confidence among people um, who where there has been experimentation, where vaccines were given in the Indian hospital system without consent, where there is ongoing um, mistreatment and uh, violence against Indigenous peoples in the healthcare system. So how do we then convince people that vaccination is important? And, and that's where the self-determination piece, that's where community leadership, um, organizing and understanding how edu what education needed to be shared, who needed to be role modeling getting vaccines, who should be delivering vaccines, all of that was a way to help uh, build confidence in this vaccine. I was speaking with Michelle Good earlier, uh, the author of Five Little Indians. And in her book, uh, she really brings to life um, uh, through the stories of her characters how hospitals are not necessarily places of healing uh, for, for Indigenous peoples, that they're, they're their ties to law enforcement, their ties to child services, uh, apprehensions, um, you know, just really undermines that, that, that aspect that, you know, or that notion that, that, that hospitals are, are places for, for care, uh, and healing. And, and, and I don't think, I mean, as much as we all should be, I'm not sure people really appreciate that and what kind of role that can play in, you know, reasonably in hesitancy. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's such a great point, Jody. Hospitals are inhospitable for many people. But when we look at the hospital and healthcare system for people who have been forcibly removed from community in order to be placed in a TB sanatorium, which was an Indian hospital system, to have a segregated form of healthcare, which is a second tier of care, um, who were, uh, you know, experimented on in the residential school systems in the name of science and biomedicine, who continue to be dehumanized in our emergency departments or in, you know, seeking care for cancer or other chronic illnesses, um, as, as with what happened with Joyce Echequan, there is, it, they are much more than inhospitable. They actually um, can be dangerous places for Indigenous people. And so we need to um, really rethink how we structure our hospitals to become more inclusive for Indigenous peoples. And that's not just about providing the state-of-the-art um, cardiac care, cancer care, kidney transplants, whatever it, the need may be. It's about allowing people to have choice, to be able to access their culture and medicines, which will bring that uh, safety and healing. If, if, they ch if a person chooses to do that, it would be wrong and to assume that every Indigenous person wants to access tradition their traditional medicine. But um, if, if they do want that, who, where is the space for that? Where are the elders who can help explain to their healthcare team, for example, why a person may be suffering if they're put on a salt restriction for heart failure because they've been in a residential school and experienced food deprivation. So that so there is so much work to be done in that space. And I think we do need we we can't overlook how vaccines are a part of the institution of healthcare more broadly, public health and also um, acute care medicine. And, and how it can become representative of that. And so the sim what may seem like a fairly simple act for many actually has a whole, whole lot of, a whole underbelly that actually is 
needs to be understood and exposed in order to build confidence. So much of creating um, a safe and welcoming environment for Indigenous peoples really starts uh, with the education that that uh, you know future care providers receive. And I and I know you hold uh, several leadership roles in the medical education space. I was hoping you could talk to us a bit about the uh, the national consortium. Uh, that was announced to tackle anti-Indigenous racism in medical education. What's the goal of that? And and what what tools are being used to, to, to advance the, this consortium? So the National Consortium in Indigenous Medical Education arose because um, there was an understanding and there, that the need to teach about Indigenous health, cultural safety, anti-racist practice... Um, was urgent and that there was a huge amount of variability across our medical schools and, and um, postgraduate medical education uh, centers around, around the country. So some are um, well equipped to do this work and have indigenous uh, faculty members, indigenous staff, traditional knowledge keepers and elders and others who are involved. And some uh, you know, don't even have, barely have, <laughs> say, barely have a team. They may have one faculty member. Um, and we knew that there was a huge need to, to bring along, bring everyone along, that it wasn't, that this shouldn't depend, your exposure to Indigenous health and, and learning shouldn't depend on what medical school you go to. This is fundamental as a competency for any practicing physician. And so this consortium is an opportunity for all of our school, our medical schools and health sciences faculties, uh, specific because some medical schools are, are aligned with uh, larger, broader faculties of health, health science, um, to work together, to share um, ideas, curriculum, policies, practices. How do we recruit more Indigenous faculty? How do we support Indigenous learners, um, students? How do we, um, you know, someone's developed an amazing module around teaching trauma-informed care related to the experience in the Indian hospital system. How can that be shared across a network? And then how can we collaboratively, collaboratively work also with the organizations that accredit our institutions, like the Royal College um, and... Uh, those who design curriculum, like the Association of Faculties of Medicine of Canada and the Canadian uh, Family Physicians of Canada, also involved in accreditation. How can we all work together to advance the work? Because it was like we were all being called. There was a handful of us as, as Indigenous medical educators and leaders who were being called into all these different institutions. And we were just saying, we have to work together. Really, these are, in, and it's interesting to look at those institutions that I've mentioned, the AFMC, which is the Faculties of Medicine Association of Faculties of Medicine, the World College, the CFPC, the Medical Council of Canada. They've they hadn't really come together to work closely on many initiatives in the past. And so to see this collaboration across institutions with all being centered around the Indigenous Physicians Association of Canada as the core partner to lead to ensure that this was Indigenous-led was really important, I think. And, um, you know... This broad scale change is not going to happen unless there is, unless we're all moving together and we're sharing and col and collaborating. And that's really interesting because what I find in many academic institutions, it's built on a culture of individualism and comp and competition. So, uh, it, so when you start looking at collective action and uh, collaboration, it's kind of antithetical to to the culture of many of these orgs and institutions. So to actually see this um, movement has been phenomenal. And it's also just an amazing community um, for those of us who are doing the work to be able to support one another. Well, that's fantastic. Um, and the, uh, the um, uh, training in conflict resolution and anti-racist practice and, and human rights, uh, having that be a part of medical education, that was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission recommendation, if I understand that correctly. Yes, it was. And it's interesting because isn't that relevant for so much 
uh, so many other aspects of medicine. I think it, you know, it, it's interesting. This is an example of where um, supporting the well-being of Indigenous people and Indigenous innovation and ideas such as those calls to action from the TRC will elevate the care that all people receive because they will, these ideas can help transform our practice so that not only are we caring for um, our Métis patients or um, uh, First Nations, you know, Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabe, whomever they may be um, in terms of their indigeneity well, but these are skills that will enhance the way we care for all people. So I think um, I, I, do, I do love the, that the TRC is for, has, has brought this to the forefront of curriculum in, in medical education. Absolutely. I spoke with the um, Association of uh, Black Students at U of T Medicine um, last, uh, oh, about this time last year. Um, and these were exactly the, the kinds of issues that they wanted to see become a part of medical education. And, you know, hopefully this, this will, um, this will you know, really elevate all all of medicine because medicine at the end of the day and 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 healthcare in general, it's a people business, right? Like we sometimes people get wowed by the tech or you know uh, all of the great innovations um, that that uh, you know are, are brought to the fore, but it, it's still fundamentally people caring for people. So 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 this is just so fundamental to quality and safety. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And again, this is where when we think about, um, you know, an, an Ishtabe way of being and knowing, for example, which is all about relationship and relationship based and relational is an example of how these ideas can enhance the care for all because I to and, and I think medicine is having this wake up call right now with artificial intelligence and the sort of technophilia, the real, you know, love of, of, of medical uh, technology and science is clearly important. But I, I speak to my learners often about the art of medicine and how, how listening to patients, learning and understanding um, their perspectives, their experience of an illness is so critical. And it's not only important to in, enhance their experience of the care, it actually makes you a better clinician. Like you, you're able to come to diagnoses and understand things in a different way and provide a, a different form of care that's not only about treating, um, you know, the physical illness or the physical sickness, but about how do we enhance well-being and and the wellness of our patients and and of whole communities too. Another one of the announcements related to consultations on Indigenous health policy legislation. So that's like huge. That 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 could be so many things. Um, but 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 let's just start at a at a high level um, as we turn our minds to it. What 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 are your hopes as as a clinician and a leader for for what this legislation could include or accomplish? I think that um, when we look at Indigenous health equity, legislation is going to, needs to be a part of, of achieving it. And the reason for that is Indigenous health inequities are, are different than many others because they are, they have been legislated. They have emerged due to colonial policies that continue to um, be in place, whether it be through, uh, you know, a separate um, system to provide insurance for drug coverage and allied health coverage, whether it be through, you know, the federal funding of public health and um, healthcare delivery on reserve so that you get have two different jurisdictions, um, whether it be through, you know, all of the policies that created inequities such as the residential school system, the Indian Act, um, the, the Indian hospital system. These are, these were, the inequity was built into the system. And so through, including through legislation and policies. So to counter that, we need to actually um, <laughs> build legislation as well. So I think what's 
key for me and what I have seen as, um, as best or the wise practice to help achieve um, Indigenous well-being for communities is understanding first that self-determination must be respected as for as per the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Indigenous peoples have the rights to determine what their health priorities are, what their health system in particular environments should look like. And so health transformation um, that enables Indigenous health self-determination, such as what we see with the First Nations Health Authority, is really key. I think secondly, we also need to understand that this um, each community is different. The needs are different, and that's where the self-determination piece also it really helps because not only does it have to be distinct, distinctions-based, as we say, so recognizing First Nations, Inuit, and Métis as, as distinct and with, diff, with distinct leadership um, groups and, and organizations that, that need to be guiding this, but each, even within um, First Nations communities, for example, there's such diversity, not only based on geography and remoteness, et cetera, but also you could have two communities that are, that are, you know, a hundred or 50 K apart. So the geography is similar, but the needs are different. So I think that, uh, how do we enable that, um, that specificity and, uh, allow for context specific, um, needs to be met and and that I think once again is through having that uh, self-determined approach so uh, the other piece around legislation is we have had report after report after report that showed the same thing and we haven't seen action and accountability and I think it's time to really build in accountability around outcomes and also hold people accountable for the kind of racist behavior that we observed Joyce Ashaquan experiencing. So those would be some of the key components for me. You know, one of the things when, you know, when, when I try to think about this, that, that, that I see um, as a challenge is, you know, we, we talk about health systems, but, you know, at least at the, you know, at the provincial level, they're kind of illness treatment systems <laughs> more than health systems. And, and, you know, so, so I think one of the challenges uh, of indigenous health legislation um, to, to really lift up um, outcomes is going to grapple with, you know, how upstream is this legislation uh, daring to go to, to, to actually create better health outcomes. I totally agree, Jody. I'm someone who who believes in the health and all policies approach. I think we we can't we can't start to address um, you know high rates of complications from diabetes until we address food security. We can't start to look at um, you know not having access to um, let's say cancer screening or not wanting to have cancer screening until we look at um, meaningful employment and being able, you know, lifting people out of systems of poverty. So I, I do see this as having to take, this is where a self-determined approach and bringing indigenous con concepts of well-being to um, thinking about health legislation is really interesting because how do we think about supporting mental, physical, emotional, spiritual health? Well, it's about connection to land. So what it, it, it will, it will be, I do, do see this as potentially being expansive, but I think if we look to um, our communities to lead us, they will say what's most important in, to, to include um, access to healthy food, access to language education and culture, access to providers who understand indigeneity and indigenous, more indigenous providers. So I think that we can, um, through using an indigenous lens, I think we'll be able to understand how to prioritize um, legislation. 
Premier Legault has refused to uh, acknowledge systemic racism in the healthcare system, specifically anti-Indigenous racism. Um, How much of a roadblock can this be? And, you know, how big of a worry is that for you when you think about this legislation? You know, reconciliation can't come without truth first. And so I think... Um, an inability to understand and acknowledge the truth of what's happening and the existence of racism and how racism is having um, ongoing daily impacts in the lives of Indigenous peoples here is is a barrier. Will it um, prevent this movement um, towards... Um, indigenous tra- health transformation? No, because I, I think that I think that we are at a at a groundswell now of um, understanding, both among um, strong indigenous leaders who are experienced and wise and um, strategic, but I think we're seeing allies. And the awakening among allies who are realizing that this just cannot go on anymore. So I think having particular individuals um, be resistant is a problem. But I'm hoping that with pressure from um, many, many different um, contributors in our society and leaders, um, that will change. So I, I, I do I do feel like there's momentum now and it's it, it will be hard to prevent this from advancing. And at the end of the day, as you said earlier, it's also an opportunity to elevate uh, the quality of healthcare more generally. <laughs> you know, many of these changes will will benefit uh, more than Indigenous peoples. I, abso- I, I truly think that. I think that strengths-based approach of understanding Indigenous um, approaches to well-being is what's needed. Um, and, you know, I have a friend who went to get get his COVID test at, um, at Anishinaabe Health um, Outreach Bus, um, and he, which is an urban Indigenous organization here in Toronto. And he said, he's not an Indigenous person. And um, as, you know, as from many uh, indigenous orgs they don't want to turn away anyone so he he was able to have his test done there because it was urgent and he just said what an experience like it was just an incredible experience comparatively compared to being in other um non-indigenous uh healthcare centers to get tested and so i think this is an example of where these ways of understanding and being and caring and wraparound care and um thoughtfulness and relationship relationality will um make our healthcare system better overall i have to tell you that i i mentor and and see and know so many incredible incredible younger um indigenous docs or um, nurses or healthcare leaders um, in various across professions, and they inspire me as well. Like they are, they are just so phenomenal. And and I think that is another part of the the equation here is that we have these gr- a growing uh, workforce of of leaders who um, are really connected to their communities and are um, able to walk in both worlds and are going to drive change. Dr. Lisa Richardson, you're one of those leaders. You're a mentor. This is really a transformational moment for, for medical education as well, not just the, the delivery of care. And, and you're, you're a big part of what's driving it. Thank you so much for, for all of your efforts and for your time today in speaking with me. Thank you so much, Jody. It's really been fun and great, great conversation. Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. For over a year now, I've been sitting down with guests from the world of academia, journalism, politics, and activism to bring you single-issue current affairs discussions to help make sense of today's politics and policy in Canada and around the world. 
you and I are friends. We are longtime friends. So the dynamic might be a little different. We might make jokes. A little more vicious, I was thinking. <laughs> Retaining this left-right distinction where one group's ideas, you know, the ideology is correct and your ideas, are, your ideology is wrong. That's exactly how we continue to talk over a big divide and don't get cohesive action on this problem. I think we need to leave our dogma at the door and then we may be able to sort of force our politicians to do something. I think it gets much more difficult to ask for help the 10th time or the 12th time or yes. the 20th time, especially for the people like you or in worse situations like that really cannot leave their house or do not even have the money or the means to carry out various things. But really what I want is action. Mm. I want people to be engaged. I don't want people to be either panicked or hopeful. I want people to understand that this crisis requires them to do something. And this is a feminist thing, right? Like giving yourself permission to stop with the punishing thoughts of productivity is the radical act of care right now. I think it always has been in capitalism. And I think now we are confronting just how powerful that can be in terms of our mental health. At its core, this podcast is meant to be a space for discussions that are essential to good policy and a healthy democracy. Open to Debate returns this fall. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>